Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 89, Arianism, recorded Thursday, June 30th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how you doing? Tired. Um, it's... My boss has been out for the last couple of weeks at work. He's uh, doing some out-of-state customer stuff. So I've been, I've learned a lot, which has been good, but it will be nice when he comes back next week. Uh, I hear you. Yeah. And and I know, (laughs) a little note for our listeners, we usually kind of record about an hour and a half, almost two hours earlier than what we're actually doing tonight. But I had a thing and my wife had a thing and then it turned out that the topic we're doing tonight which is arianism is a much bigger thing than we were expecting i was gonna do like a complete history of arianism and semi-arianism and a bit on monarchianism and the first council of nicaea and we're gonna stop before the first council of nicaea because that's an entire episode in and of itself as it turns out so This is yeah. part one of what's likely to be at least a two or three part series. Uh, it's going to be a two parter. I'm pretty sure. Maybe three. No more than that. Yeah. But it's it's kind of important because this is the biggest heresy the early church ever faced. Bigger than any of the Gnostic heresies. It was fundamentally Christological. It, it was a question of who is Christ and what is his relationship with God, and it also became political, thus affecting the survival of the church or parts of the church in the Roman Empire. So it it was a big deal. So we're going to be talking about it. However, first, we got to talk about Patreon, because you people are awesome. After just about two weeks Not even. We launched it. We launched it like nine days ago. This recording. You're right. Nine days. Nine days of having our Patreon up. We have already hit our first goal. We are 100% listener funded, which is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Seriously, thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you very much. This is yes. This is incredible. It's generous. It's more than we expected this fast, especially. Yeah, and our next goal is uh, a $45 mark where we'll start having a budget that we can spend on improving the show, which is pretty cool. You know, getting some new hardware, picking up some new things to discuss, maybe getting out to small cons, that sort of thing. So for more information about that, go to patreon.com slash saving the game or stgcast.org slash Patreon. If you go up to stgcast.org, there's a link to our Patreon up on the top in the menu there. So thank you. If you want more information about that, you want to become a backer, head out there, take a look. Now, one of the goals that we have for our listeners, one of our rewards, is being able to ask us a question. And I'll be honest with you. When I when I said, you know what, let's build a table of fun questions, you know, that people will ask us, I kind of envisioned some short, ridiculous questions, a little bit like the system mastery afterthoughts thing. 
you know, hey, here's some goofy questions that Peter and Grant will answer real quick before the episode. We have a table of some very hard, complicated questions that we could do an entire episode on. Yep. Like each one of these. We do have <laughs> we do have one pithy, funny question in here, which I'm actually hoping we land on tonight because we've got a lot to discuss. Yeah. But if well, we don't, this might be three episodes. This might be three episodes because we might be doing a whole episode before the episode. <laughs> yeah. Is really how this, this might may be. Turn this out. might be Grant and Peter answer a patron question and then set up the next episode. Yeah. So if you want us to have more questions that are really in depth or more questions that are really funny, back us. Put your questions on the list. Wait it one way or the other. Yep. All right. So without further ado, we promised you a question and an answer. Let's roll it up. Alrighty. And that is a, I'm rolling a D4 here. That's a four. Oh boy. Okay. So this, is, this one is pretty much a whole email. This is from Patreon backer Richard, uh, goes by Rich in most of our communications. He's been emailing us for a while. He's been a long time listener. I know that. He wrote us a whole email that I think is important for context for this question. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. I started running a game when my wife insisted I get off the computer and play with the kids, so I introduced them to role-playing, and moved through a series of game systems over the last half a dozen years. I started with just my son and daughter when they were maybe 10 and 7. I am so looking forward to that age, you've no idea. (laughs) Slowly, we've introduced some of their friends, and I run a game for half a dozen now, with my 17-year-old son being the oldest. I love the idea of sandbox games and letting them go where they want, do what they want, make their own stories. Unfortunately, they don't. I think, but I'm not positive that they're all raised with a video game mindset. CRPGs set up a bad guy and a main storyline and a few side quests. They don't seem to realize that they are fully autonomous and can make their own decisions, go their own way, and make their own story. Do you have any recommendations on how to expand their horizons and let them see beyond the rails they're used to riding on? Yes, actually. Yes, yes I do. I will say, before we get into that though, that I also started as that player. I did not pick up RPGs until college, and all of my gaming before that was computer games. So, this is not uncommon. It's probably more common now, just due to the proliferation of video games and their accessibility, but yeah, this in is fact, not I would a say new this problem. is probably more common than not, even. Yeah, oh, certainly. Absolutely. Uh, now, it did help that I was a reader, But even then, I mean, let's be honest, a book is pretty linear. You know, it's full of, we we look at it and say, oh, you know, these are worlds full of possibilities, but it's one author's story. So keep that in mind. Now, having said that, yes, we both have some recommendations. Peter, go ahead. Okay, so my first one is instead of just dropping the characters down into the world and saying, okay, you know, it's this kind of a setting, what you doing? I think it's better if you populate your world with interesting things and see what they gravitate towards, see what they ask Mm -hmm. more about. And as they start to show interest in things, just keep making that flower open up further and further. You know, they, they see like a neat crest on some knight's shield as he rides past or something and they want to know what it is. Okay, you know, make up more about that. Come to the, you know, the next session with that or have some ideas in your mind and just build and build and build from there. By, by making it to the point where the all of the impetus is on the characters, it's it's paralyzing, and I think you're robbing yourself and your player group of 
more of the back and forth that could exist. I don't know. What do you think, Grant? That's that's off the top of my head. Well, we're doing all of this off the top of our head. Here's the secret, right. by the way, for these Patreon questions. There's no prep. All yeah. the outlining we do? Uh-uh. None of that for these. That's half the fun. Yeah. So I think you're right that there may be some paralysis here. One of the, the common metaphors that I hear is that sandbox games don't work because they're too paralyzing. It's too wide open. Anybody who's played like Skyrim, for example, is like, oh, there are all these things to do. What do I do? You know, you, you never really get anywhere. Right. I think the better approach would be a theme park where you can go to whatever you want, but those things are kind of set pieces that you have kind of planned out. That way, they have a choice of things that they can go do, and it's entirely up to them which one they do. But you're not saying, all right, here's an entire world. Go do things. Because that, that's terrifying. That's paralyzing. And remember, we're talking about kids who don't have as much life experience and story experience as adult gamers. So, I mean, you said your 17-year-old son is the oldest. You know, there there may be some fractiousness. There's also a lot of... There's also a lot of... I'm going to say group politics in a group made of kids because kids like everyone are social animals, but they don't have the filters and those social dynamics are kind of all they know because it's their friends who they see all the time and, and all that. There's no barrier. So you may be dealing with just some, a, a sense that rather than making suggestions, they don't really want to, you know, offend the rest of the group or, make waves, something like that. That could be happening. Now, I do think that there are probably some rails here. I think the key thing to do is suggest to someone. Well, I, here's what here's what I would do. I would say, suggest to someone, hey, why don't you, you know, investigate this thing and make it something kind of random. Definitely, clearly not part of the plot and really reward them for investigating it and then give them a couple of options to go investigate and slowly expand the number of options that they have rather than really giving them one plot to go down give them a couple you know that theme park idea and make sure to reward them with something something fun when they do it uh make a really big point maybe even over reward creativity you know somebody does something kind of cool while dungeon crawling go crazy with the rewards and maybe not like monty hall level but you know some extra xp and a lot of story focus on them doing that thing okay cool now the next guy will want to do something kind of cool on on his own and that'll slowly build i think it's a matter of just encouraging them incrementally to get further and further off the track and investigate little things. They may simply not be investigating very much. And that's, I think about it. Peter, you got anything else? Yeah, I've got one last thing that I would suggest, and this is kind of a mainstay of a lot of sandbox style games. Make an event calendar. Come up with a couple of groups, big, small, influential or not, that have agendas of their own and that will do certain things at certain times and certain times, by the way, you don't have to keep a meticulous calendar. Just say they'll do this in four sessions or they'll do this after the first three hours of us sitting down to the the game table, whatever. 
whatever is convenient for you, whatever works there. At any rate, have these people have things that they're going to do as long as the player characters don't intervene in some way. I like it. And then let the player characters disrupt that wherever and however they feel like and rewrite it for the next session. And there you go. That's our advice. Rich, thanks for the question. Awesome question. Good news. You get to get us another one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, We'll poke you about that. So So, be thinking uh, of another one because we will poke you. (laughs) Oh, yes. And like we said, if you have a question of your own, you know, you can always email us and we'll try and reply to you. But, you know, if you want it read on the show, back us on Patreon. And if you don't feel like doing that, take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else. Uh, Share us around on social media. Those things help us a lot, too. They really do. Yeah. All right. Any other news and notes? Don't think so. Awesome. Let's get into this. All right. Uh, Boy, scripture. You want to take this? Uh, Tell you what, let me take Proverbs here. Okay. So this is Proverbs 8.22. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. I think that was 22 and 23, actually. Yes, it was. We've got for our second verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 to 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, both in quotation marks, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So our main topic tonight is Arianism. Not to be confused with the Nazi thing. No, this is not the A-R-Y-A-N-ism. This is A-R-I-A-N-ism. This is a Christological heresy, a a heresy, a heterodox point of view pertaining to the nature of Christ. Real quick, heterodox just means conflicting with official doctrine or tradition. Exactly. We've talked about Christological heresies before, and in fact, we've talked about one of the precursor thoughts of Arianism, adoptionism. That was in one of our historical heresies episodes. I think the first one. Maybe the yeah, second. Yeah, I think it was adoptionism and Ebionism was our first one. I believe you're right. So, I'll link that in the show notes. But, yeah. very briefly, Arianism claims that Christ is not purely man, right? It is, it is certainly not the human ad- adopted by God but rather is a created being. Arianism claims that Christ did not exist at one point in time because Christ, the Son, was begotten by God. And thus, if he was begotten, if he was the first thing produced by God, there must therefore have been a time when he did not exist, and thus the Son is finite compared to the infinite God the Father, and is thus inferior to and subject to the Father. That's kind of the core of Arianism. It kind of merges with adoptionism, as we'll talk about in a bit, but that's that's ultimately kind of the, the starting point of Arianism. Now, this was considered by pretty much all contemporary voices in the church to be the most significant heresy in its history, and that seems to have been more now, because Arianism 
lasted for a long time and had tremendous effects on the whole church, including triggering the First Council of Nicaea and starting the process of ecumenical councils that have given us uh, a number of canonical doctrines, various different creeds, all sorts of things. Now, Arianism was influenced by and kind of comes from monarchianism. Again, monarchianism is a broad term for beliefs which emphasize the singular nature of God as opposed to the triune nature espoused by Trinitarianism. So we've talked about adoptionism, which is one form of monarchianism. There's also another form we're going to talk about in another episode called modalism, which considers God to be one person working in three different modes. Uh, most popular form of this was Sibelianism. So this is where we have a lot to talk about, because the history of Arianism is pretty complicated. There's a connected chain of heterodox thought that kind of runs from the mid-200s all the way to the 400s, and really up through to the Middle Ages. Uh, there's a lot going on here, so let's talk about it. By the way, folks, this is probably going to be one of those... Um... Grant teaches Peter some history episodes, so I'm still here. You just won't hear as much of me as usual this time. <laughs> Fair enough. So this all kind of starts with Paul of Samosata. Paul of Samosata was elected Bishop of Antioch in 260 AD. Antioch uh, is kind of near uh, the modern city of Antakya, Turkey. Uh, that's where Antakya gets its name, Antioch. Um, but it's kind of a ancient Greek and Roman city, okay? Just to give you some uh, geographical context. Yes, some geographical context. Thank you. Uh, very close to Syria. Paul of Samosata was elected bishop, uh, the bishop of Antioch in 260 AD, as I said, and he held civil office at the same time. He was a procurator ducinarius. I hope I got that right. My Latin is terrible. Essentially, he's a minor judge hearing minor cases in a civil uh, environment, as well as the Christian bishop of the city. Now, Paul is not described kindly by the historical record. Uh, the, the accusations against him include rapacious extortion of contributions from the faithful, using public funds for himself... Supposedly, he uh, promoted his own wisdom and eloquence in the pulpit, having people de uh, declare uh, just how wonderful he was in church out loud, you know, that sort of thing. Supposedly, there were sexual and gluttonous indulgences. Pr one uh, author claims that he, had, that he stopped the production of hymns to Christ and instead had people sing hymns to himself, describing himself as an angel come down from heaven, yada, yada, yada. Yeesh. However, the only surviving records we have are written by fierce opponents of Paul's teachings. So, and in that time, it was very common to ascribe all sorts of foul behaviors to your intellectual opponents. It's very difficult to say what's true and what's an ad hominem attack. <laughs> Prime example of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, yes. I mean, it, the volume comes and goes, but the, the, but the tenor stays the same. Yeah. yeah. Now, there does appear to have been a general uproar against him by other presbyters, however. So 
Some of that certainly appears to have been true, or at least the theology he espoused uh, was so radical that various, that most people didn't particularly want him to stay in office. In 269 AD, 70 bishops, priests, and deacons gathered in Antioch, deposed Paul, and sent an encyclical letter to the bishops of Rome and Alexandria and, and elsewhere, describing the situation and the action that they took to depose him. Now, due to the political situation in Antioch, Paul continued to occupy the bishop's house in Antioch and claim the title of bishop for another four years. Uh, the queen of Smyrna was trying to extract her kingdom from the Roman Empire, was essentially rebelling against Rome, and eventually the Roman Emperor Aurelian rolled in, put a stop to that, and actually had a hearing with people supporting Paul and opposed to Paul, and determined that uh, Paul should, in fact, be removed from office. Now, fragments of Paul's teachings are preserved in Anastasius's book Against Heresies. Uh, we're not going to quote everything, but he was a proto-adoptionist, and he believed that the role of Christ was a title granted to God by a man who had kept himself completely free from sin, this being Jesus. So, uh, Jesus, and this is a quote, By struggle and hard work, overcame the sins of our forefather. By these he succeeded in perfecting himself, and was, through his moral excellence, united with God. So, essentially, this is that adoptionist tendency, right? Right. Okay, here's, here's a human who is selected by God to be Christ, uh, the Spirit descending upon him, etc., right? We, uh, what we see described and what we talked about in that adoptionist episode. Now, in this case, it was because, essentially, Jesus was perfect through his own efforts, which is an interesting distinction, and thus God said, oh, Perfect. That's what, what that's what I wanted. I'm making you the Christ. So an interesting variation on what became kind of the, the formal adoptionist philosophy. One of Paul's students was a man named Lucian. Lucian of Antioch. Uh, he was a pupil in Antioch, sometimes confused with a more famous Lucian, also from Samosata, just to make things confusing. Yeah, people uh, needed a few more names back in the old days, I think. They kind of did, yes. Um, uh, now, Eusebius of Caesarea, who's a major source for this whole history and was involved in a great deal of this debate, notes that Lucian was a learned theologian and that he formed his own school in Antioch. He was excommunicated under suspicion of heresy after Paul was deposed, but eventually reconciled probably around 285 AD. Maybe a little later, but 285 AD is the more commonly accepted. Ouch. Excommunicated just on suspicion? Uh, basically. It, it was, you know, okay, we, you're, you seem to have been a heretic, we're going to excommunicate you. Uh, and he does certainly seem to have had some unorthodox views about the nature of Christ. Now, during the persecutions of Maxima, uh, Maximinus Dia, Maximinus II, who reigned for a very short period of time he, uh, in the Roman Empire from 308 to 313, Lucian was arrested. Wow, whole five years. Whole five years. It was part of a whole civil war. But he, uh, Lucian was arrested 
sent to Nicomedia, and tortured over nine years of imprisonment. He was brought up for examination twice, and both times defended himself very well, and refused to renounce his Christian faith under torture and threat of torture. Uh, he was eventually martyred traditionally on January 7th, 312 A.D. No one is entirely certain what the means are. Some traditions say that he was starved to death purposely. Some say he was beheaded. Uh, one tradition says he was thrown into the ocean to drown and that his body was returned by a dolphin. But regardless, he was officially martyred, uh, considered a martyr and a saint by both the Catholic and Orthodox traditions of the church. He is notable because he is traditionally credited with a critical revision of the Septuagint and the Greek New Testament, and those writings eventually formed the basis of the received texts used in the German Luther Bible, the Tyndale translation of the New Testament into English, and the King James Version of the Bible, as well as other Reformation-era translations. So, this guy, who we're talking about as a heterodox and maybe heretical Christian, maybe, also was key to the Reformation because his works became that the Bible translated into the common language, into the vernacular. Now, there is no proof of this one way or the other. You know, it's ascribed to him, but there's just no evidence that it was actually him. There's no evidence that it was anyone else. So traditionally, it's been attributed to him. One of those things where... Back in those days, they didn't have quite as permanent of ways of keeping records as we did. Archiving, right. while they did their best, was just not as easy. Right. Now, uh, interestingly, St. Jerome, who is considered one of the uh, fathers of the Bible as we have it, one of the fathers of the Latin translation of the Bible, uh, appears to say at one point that he has some of Lucian's texts and doesn't actually like them very much. Go figure. Hmm. Yeah. But he generally appears to have been a notable Christian scholar of some influence, especially in the area, who maybe had some unorthodox Christological views. Those views normally would, you know, cause people to consider him a heretic, but because of his heroic martyrdom, the later church largely ignored those, unlike uh, the approach that they took with his teacher and his pupil, Arius, who we're about to talk about. And so let's talk about Arius who the whole thing is named for, despite not really being the originator of Arianism. Arius was of Libyan birth, possibly a Berber, uh, born sometime around 250 AD, maybe a bit later, died 336 AD. So he lived now, a good long life. That's somewhere in his 80s. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. As with Paul of Samosata, there's very little literature supporting Arius's position. Very little exists, in no small part because the Emperor Constantine ordered all of Arius' teachings burned and anyone who hid any of them executed. Constantine was not known for half measures. Not so much, no. And we're going to talk a lot about Constantine next episode. Yeah. Now, Arius studied under Lucian in Antioch, and that's generally believed to be the place where he picked up Paul's Monarchian Perspectives. Now, Arius was also excommunicated and readmitted to the church. In this case, it was over a dispute about whether those who had denied their Christian faith under threat of Roman torture should be readmitted to the church. Arius supported the rigorous and 
historically unusual position that they should not be readmitted. Okay. Now, in 313, he was appointed a presbyter in Alexandria. And I've used the word presbyter a few times. In the early church, it's a Greek word, um, distinct from the word meaning priest, it's kind of translated as elder. I think it literally translates as old man. But basically, it's someone with authority in the church. Elder is probably the closest Protestant take on it. Uh, but even then, there's more there's more authority than most church elders have. Well, this is, the, kinda, this is the root word that your denomination's name comes from, right? It is, and it has a completely different meaning. Go figure. Of course it does, because nothing is simple in this kind of a thing. <laughs> nothing is simple, yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Let's talk a little more in detail about Arius's positions. These are not, again, uniquely his. These kind of come down to us through him, from Lucian, from Paul, from some other thinkers. But because Arius defended these positions and was kind of the voice of these positions at the First Council of Nicaea, Arianism is attributed to Arius just because he was kind of the primary voice for it. So he wasn't the originator, he was more the spokesperson. Right, and that's why I wanted to talk about Paul of Samosata and talk about Lucian, because that's those are kind of where he gets his ideas, right? So it doesn't really start with him. Okay. So, these are his positions, and this is kind of what he defends at that first council of Nicaea. Uh, first, there was one God, the Father, unbegotten. Unbegotten is important here. He always existed, is always existing, and that is the one true God. There are no other gods. Okay. Now, he also said that Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And the, the term Lord slash Master that uh, we used in that reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that Lord Master role is the Son of God. That, you know, that, and Christ was that. And Christ was the first thing which existed, which was not God. God's very first production. And thus there was a time before Christ was begotten. Like we said towards the beginning here. There, there was a time when he was begotten, and thus a time before then when Christ did not exist. And thus Christ was not God's equal, since unlike the eternal Father who begat him, Christ had a beginning. Christ is thus subject to, subordinate to, and obedient to the Father who is supreme over his Son. Uh, as we hear in Scripture, the Father is greater than I. Right? Right. Uh, that was taken as kind of proof by the Arians that this was how things really worked. Now, interestingly, there's a little hint of some of the same things that Gnosticism seems to have picked up, even though Arius firmly believed that his view was much more closer to the traditional Semitic origins of the church, the Jewish origins, and that he was defending it against paganism. But there's this hint of Gnosticism that slips in here where through Christ, everything else was created and only the son was directly created by God. If you remember from our uh, episode on Gnosticism, you kind of have this sequence of creators yeah, right? yeah, that's very Gnostic. There's that little element in there. 
Uh, and interestingly, Arius also believed that the sun was fundamentally, the sun is capable of his own free will and of his own decision to do right or wrong in and of himself. It's not quite clear whether he believed that the sun was a completely separate entity, but that seems to have been the case. Okay, so now I'm starting to see what they found dangerous, because the very first part of this, it's like, this is cosmic history. You know, you could believe either way on that, and it would not really change much. But as we're starting to get into some of the more Gnostic elements here, I can see why the church saw this was a problem. Right. And there are some other issues, right? Essentially, there was an argument that Arius essentially was destroying the unity of the Godhead. Right. And it, it denies that first line in John, you know, in the beginning was the word, arguing that the Logos was eternally begotten and therefore with no beginning. And, it, you know, if you approached things from the Arian perspective, it completely destroys that. Right. So there, there are a couple of problems with that. And we're going to talk about those problems and arguments in more detail when... We cover the Council of Nicaea and the history of Arianism after the Council. But those are those are kind of the main problems with it, right? Okay. We, we talked before about uh, Uzia, right? The, um, the essence, right? Well, we, we've used that word before. Right. And we've also used hypostasis. Now, you know, we talk about God in three persons, three hypostases. Um, which is kind of more closely translated as substance. This is one of those cases where there was a lot of argument about the nature of those words. Well, it turns out a lot of things don't translate well from one language to another, and they translate especially poorly if the language they're being translated into is English. Right. But in this case, it was kind of arguments in Latin about these Greek words. Right. And it, these words were used by people arguing at the Council of Nicaea. One of the big deals was that the Arians essentially did not see a difference between the Son as a begotten entity, you know, begotten of God, and created by God. Okay. Okay. Whereas the opponents of that, uh, mostly followers of St. Alexander of Alexandria, they saw a, a clear distinction between creation and begetting because you beget something that is of the same type as yourself, right? When I right. beget a child, well, it's a human child. I cannot create... Yes, you have two of them as proof. Yes, I know. But I cannot <laughs> create a child like myself. Creation is making something subordinate to oneself. But you know when we talk about the son of god you know an entity begotten of the father well that means that it's like the father creation would be um in this case as opposed to begetting more like if um i don't know maybe you you did like, like a clone sp- with blank dna and then well, filled it most of the way in or something no it it'd be more like a, a very good sculpture versus a living breathing or perhaps human. a robot yeah you know something that is sort of similar but clearly not right we are we are created in god's image but we are not of the same nature as god right right that's kind of what the argument boils down to 
it's complicated. <laughs> this is where words like homoousia and uh, feces and prosopon uh, get thrown around, and we're not going to get into that. But ultimately, that's the, the nature of the argument here. So, what eventually happens is that the Emperor Constantine calls as many bishops of the Christian Church as possible within the Roman Empire to Nicaea. Uh, he called, these were about 1,800 people who were called. More than 250, somewhere between 250 and 318 uh, okay. actually come. Uh, the three, 318 is what's preserved in the liturgies of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And, you know, we're going to go into that council in more detail, but what comes out of the, those debates is essentially condemnation of Arianism as heterodox and a ban from Constantine on the teachings of Arius. Okay, so we've covered a lot of historical and theological ground here. Yes, we have. But we're still a gaming podcast. Yes, we are. Uh, real quick, by the way, next episode we're going to talk about the First Council of Nicaea in detail, because there's a lot of cool gaming stuff that can come out of that. But we're also going to talk about the spread of Arianism across the Roman Empire under later emperors who were Arians, or semi-Arians. We're going to talk about semi-Arianism, because that's a thing. And we're going to talk about the spread of Arianism to neighboring Germanic tribes, which ensures that it lasts until the Middle Ages, at least. And this is why I keep mentioning that it might be three episodes. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. Like, we could yeah. do an entire episode on uh, the Council of Nicaea, First Council, and probably the second, because many of the early ecumenical councils were all about Arianism. So, but yes, we need to talk about the gaming uses of Arianism and its history before we go on. Okay, so the first one that springs to mind here is there were a whole bunch of people in these histories, I, I want to say two or three at least, which is a s historically significant number of people who got excommunicated and then the church was like, nah, you know what, we'll take you back. Well, and there's more than that because Lucian and, uh, well, Arius was excommunicated and readmitted over an argument about people who needed to be re readmitted to the church because they had denied their faith under threat of torture. Yeah, and he thought they shouldn't be brought back in, so there's a certain level of irony to his reinstatement, as it were. <laughs> a little bit, yes. But that's an interesting thing to talk about because this is something we kind of see historically. I mean, in the Middle Ages and later, you start seeing excommunication transform from this terrible punishment into just people firing off excommunications left and right at each other and everyone largely ignoring it. Well, it's used as a political tool a lot of right. the time. I mean, it's during that particular era, it was kind of a way of saying, hey, you know, I'm mad at you, so either I will excommunicate you if I have the authority to do that, or I will go to my powerful friends and they will do it for me, kind of as a show of force. Exactly. So excommunication and readmittance back into the church is something that you really ought to play around with a lot in your game. Because very often have games with multitudes of organized religions, often coexisting with each other. Yeah, I mean, the the obvious thing that springs to mind is, what if the person who gets excommunicated has magical powers because of their fate? What happens to those? Right. Can, can temporal authorities cut somebody off from that particular source? Or is that something that the god does personally? Or how does that all work? 
Right. And what does it mean when you have a a divine entity of some sort, like, you know, kind of your fantasy pantheon of gods, that it grants power directly to powerful followers? You know, your, your classic cleric who can cast spells. Well, does the church even get to excommunicate people? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's, actually, that's actually a very important question. Because if if it's one of those things where it's like, well, we don't like what he's saying, but he can still cast Cure Light Wounds, so we really can't do much about him. Right. That's interesting, or... We think he's right, but all of a sudden he's lost his spell link. What's going on? Right. And both of those have interesting possibilities. I could see the latter being a pretty cool mystery. Hmm, yeah. Why is this cleric no longer able to, you know, no longer class- casting spells in public? What's going on? Hmm. Right. I mean, that'd be a pretty cool thing to examine. Yes, um, it would be. In other settings, it doesn't matter what perspective somebody has or even what alignment they are as long as they are clerics of that god they can cast spells uh eberron for example uh you can be chaotic evil and a cleric of a lawful good deity it doesn't matter because there are no alignment restrictions in eberron the idea is look the god has power and the gods are fairly distant so they just sort of grant power to whoever worships them they're they're pretty abstract but people are complicated and sometimes they're evil. Yeah. And, cer- you know, certainly the there's this classic idea of someone like Paul of Samosata, who is, you know, this horrible, sinful person who is nonetheless professing his faith and teaching others. Well, you know? I mean, to go back to the Eberron example, isn't like kind of the, I don't know, bishop or pope of the Church of the Silver Flame lawful evil? Yes, Yes, they are. That's actually who I was thinking of. They are they are evil, and there's a, the voice of the flame who is lawful good, and they're quite opposed to each other. Which gives you lots of opportunity to do all kinds of ecclesiarchal politics in Eberron. Exactly. But reconciliation is also an interesting possibility, because maybe you need to get involved at a political level with somebody seeking reconciliation with the church. Yeah, I mean, this goes to kind of your traditional redemption story material, obviously, but there's more to it than that, I think. Yeah, because you're not just becoming a better person and you're not just making amends with, you know, an individual or a small group of people. You are making amends with a large organization, possibly. Yeah. So what does that even look like? There's a new pope or new high priest or whatever. Would you carry a letter to them for me? Uh, And that letter is, hey, I'd like to be let back into the church because I disagreed with your predecessor, but you're a new guy. So let's let's talk it over. Yeah, I'll be loyal. Right. Yeah, that's a a classic fetch quest or delivery quest right there. Right. Yeah, that could be a good starting point for a player character. Sure. I've been excommunicated. What now? Yeah, (laughs) I'm trying to reconcile that and. There are some people who are sympathetic and some people who aren't. Because it's, you know, this leads to, this is once again, obviously very redemption story oriented, but you can wind up with kind of Jean Valjean kinds of characters in this scenario where somebody Mm -hmm. did something that was arguably fairly minor and then the experience made them worse. 
and they had another transformative experience and now they're much better. Or you can have somebody who did something real bad and maybe this was the only thing that politically could be done, but by gosh, we're going to do it because this was horrible. And now the person is maybe sincere, maybe not trying to get back in, maybe just for political reasons. What's going on with them? Right. There's a lot that you can do there. Yeah. Another possibility is heterodox schools of thought. And this is something that we see a lot in the early church, right? All these different understandings of, you know, the nature of Christ, the nature of God, that sort of thing. And I think we see this a fair bit in certain types of games. Heck, you but, see it in certain internet communities today. Oh, sure. But I'm, I'm specifically thinking of, we specifically see it in Eastern-styled settings, um, like Legend of the Five Rings. So Rokugan or... Yeah, um, Rokugan, classic example, where there are all these different schools of monks, right? Right. All these different temples you can join and different orders and that sort of thing. And they all approach things differently. And in that context, there's a little bit that kind you know there's there's some historical accuracy there a little but in western settings well we never get that which is weird because you've got like benedictines and jesuits and stuff today to say nothing of all the different protestant denominations out there sure uh and i think it's medieval fantasy when there's one church right sure yeah even when it's oh there are multiple deities that are worshiped those are independent there aren't really schools of thought about one deity right people approaching them in completely different ways and arguing about the nature so having some of that and having it boil over into these big complicated arguments that you know cause major events like you know major ecumenical councils there's a lot that you can do with that imagine being an adventurer trying to keep order and make sure nothing untoward happens at a council of clerics arguing loudly about the nature of their deity. Yeah, especially if they can all sling spells at each other if they really get mad. Right. And imagine that, you know, there are political implications and there's kind of a civil war brewing in the background and one side has one powers backing and one side has the other powers backing. Yeah, and what could be really interesting is if you agree with one side's point of view, but the other side's political alliances. Right. Kind of give your players and their characters a difficult choice to make. Yeah. I like it. Uh, and the last thing, and we're not going to talk about this too much, in part because we've kind of talked about it a lot over the course of our show, but, and especially when we were talking about adoptionism and Gnosticism, but subordinate powers in a monotheistic setting if you want to have multiple deity ish powers in your setting for people to get involved with but you want to maintain a monotheistic setting you know to try and make it a a bit more christian this is one way to approach it a lot of the time you see archangels taking these kinds of roles particularly in games like Inamine. yeah that's very common yep but you you can have things that are more like um you know, sons or, you know, children of a creator god, godlings kind of in and of themselves who are inferior to something but still functionally part of a pantheon. Right. Uh, you know, go ahead. If you're not comfortable 
with a, a multitude of deities, you can kind of approach it in that way. Now, there are also people who will be uncomfortable having something like that, and I'm kind of more in that camp, honestly. Yeah. I'd rather say, yeah, this is a fantasy world with a pantheon of different deities, or have a you know a setting where it's like, no, this is the real world, and uh, you know what? There are different beliefs, and it turns out that, yeah, there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Right. We, we've always kind of taken a Trinitarian perspective on this podcast, mostly because we're Trinitarians. Yep. <laughs> uh, like, not the Trinitarian denomination, but yeah, in a very general sense, we, we come from Trinitarian traditions. Yep. Yeah, if you want a difference of opinion on that, you're going to have to look elsewhere, because there is none for us. And look pretty far afield, honestly. Yeah, I, you're going to have to pull out the telescope, quite frankly. But, you know, that is certainly an option, and it's one we have talked about before. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to wrap this up here because if the next thing to talk about is the Council of Nicaea. And we need a whole episode for that. Next episode, in fact. Yeah, there's a lot that happens at the count, the first Council of Nicaea, subsequent councils, after the death of Constantine and the succession of his son, who is in fact an Arian completely opposed to what his father decided at the first council. <laughs> because yeah. nothing's ever simple. You know how we were talking about excommunications? Yep. Oh boy, yeah. One side gets excommunicated. The other side gets excommunicated. All right, back and forth and back and forth. It gets pretty crazy. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. Yeah, good times. Yeah. All right. All right. You got anything else, Grant? I do not, except a reminder to everybody that uh, you know, if you like our show, rate and review us on iTunes, etc., uh, check out our Patreon and thank you for listening because you're all awesome people and we could not do this without you. And a special thank you to our Patreon backers who sent us questions because that was fun and I look forward to doing that again. I, I really do too. And thank you for backing us because, man, that feels amazing. Yeah, it's great like, to it's be. It's just a huge vote of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We do need to wrap this up. It's we do. late. It is. <laughs> Y'all have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.